Good evening, everyone. It's great to see you. Um, thank you, lead worshippers, for being in tune with the Holy Spirit. And um, we're going to—I'm going to change. We, Matt and I, uh, Mark. He, I'm Matt. He's Mark. Um, uh, change slightly what, we, what I was going to talk about. It seems like the Holy Spirit is pretty specific in terms of what He wants us to consider tonight. I surrender all. Easier sung than done, right? And uh, it's great to be here and to be part of this brilliant series where you've been thinking about uh, and talking about either lost or or forgotten spiritual practices. Um, I found it profoundly helpful last week to to be reminded that I can and should meditate on the Word of God. You've heard me say a million times, it's in our lives to change our lives. And I found it really helpful to do that exercise that Kate led us in last week. And I just wonder how you got on this week. Some of you might have found that transformational straight away. Some of you would have found that very difficult. Some of you forgot to do it. That's fine, you know. If that's your starting point, that is your starting point. Then remember this week to have a go. It, it, it is absolutely a book that changes people's lives. Lives. Tonight, we're going to think about self-consecration. And, uh, but like I just said, we're going, to, we're going to do it very differently to how we plan to. I'm going to kind of inadvertently deal with it. Kind of come at it from the side, if you will. To consecrate yourself is to kind of devote yourself, dedicate yourself to something, set yourself apart. So in the case of Christianity, to, to Jesus. So it's like we're in this world, but not of this world. Okay, so obviously, this is our physical location, but we are first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom if we're consecrated and set apart for him. So like your, your spiritual location becomes secondary to your, sorry, your, your physical location becomes secondary to your spiritual orientation. But this has been kind of fantastically misunderstood by the church historically because it does not mean that you become exclusive or withdrawn, that you cut yourself off from this world. Far from it. You're in this world to be make difference makers in this world. You and me, we're called to be his hands and feet. We're called to minister to the least and the last and the helpless and the hurting. It's no good being so heavenly that you're no earthly use. But it does mean that your physical location is secondary, is less important than your spiritual orientation. The obvious question that we start with then is, how do you live like that? How do I get away from, how do I get a way of life that helps me stay in touch and be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Meaning that I can do things, I'm empowered to do things that I otherwise wouldn't be. I need a way of life that's that's not legalistic, or mechanical or superficial, but at the same time I need a life that is different from the way I used to live and the way everyone else is living. But too many people, too many Christians um, think that being a Christian is about professing and adhering to a set of beliefs, which of course it is, but that has to be more than that. One of the great illusions, even amongst church folk, is that information brings about transformation. 
And those of you that know me will know that I'm passionate about information about theology, our understanding of who God is and how he is. I'm passionate about the apologetic to, to intellectually defend the Christian faith, but that in and of itself is not sufficient. I always find it fascinating when you think about the, the, the first Christians, the people actually in Jesus' community, that they were referred to as followers of the way. Followers of the way. I love that. You see them in the book of Acts, chapter 9 and, and 22, I think it is, but all through the book of Acts, actually, followers of the way. Not believers in the creed. We sang the creed earlier. It's very important. It's very important to know what you believe. And sometimes, actually, they were called believers, having said that. Um, but at the, the New Testament Greek word for believers, to believe, is the same as trust, actually, pisteo. So you, whenever you see that word, you can read it as people who trust. To trust Jesus precisely means to follow his way. And to consecrate yourself, to dedicate yourself, to devote yourself to any cause, you, of course, have to, first of all, trust that person or thing that you're trying to dedicate yourself to. So in the case of Christianity, you must necessarily trust Jesus. So is that it? Is that all we need to do? Well, no, frankly, that's not far enough. You have to do something with that trust. And I believe this is what the Holy Spirit has been very clearly calling out to us during worship. You have to do something with that conviction. You have to give up. And Mark is looking at me thinking, what is the idiot teaching them now? I, I, because I don't mean give up as in quit. Let's call it, a, let's have a closing prayer and go home. I mean relinquish. Surrender. I surrender all. That's not an optional extra. If I am persuaded by Jesus, if I completely trust Jesus, if I want to consecrate myself to Jesus, then friends, you have to surrender completely your life and your will fully to Jesus. This is expressed in the most famous prayer ever taught, the Lord's Prayer. Let's just remind ourselves, just as a single phrase in there, that sums this up. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And you can pray that prayer anytime. Your will be done anytime. When you're frustrated because you're in a traffic jam and you can't control the traffic. When you're worried about your kids because you can't control your kids. He's not listening now. <laughs> When you're worried about your parents because you can't control your parents, eh? When you're mad with your spouse because you can't control her. When you're mad because you haven't got a spouse and you can't control that. When the computer crashes. When you don't get into that school that you wanted to or the university or the sports team or the club. Or you don't get that promotion at work or that job. When you wanted him to say yes and he said no. Even when you're worried about money, even when you're facing death, you can say this prayer. You could live this prayer anytime. Your will be done. Something in the universe unlocks, you know, when you surrender your will. It's like a key to a door. Somebody wrote, it's like a key to a door uh, that opens almost by itself. And inside we see a pathway with an inscription that says, this way to a faith that actually works.
And it does work, friends. I will tell you about this prayer in my own life and why I need it so much. You all know me. But I've been a Christian long enough now and I'm spiritually mature enough to know that I, I only have two problems and, and they're not called George and Sam. I have two other problems. Some of you looking out have lots of them, but I only have two. The first problem is I don't do the things I want to do, which is bad enough. But the second problem is I do do things I don't want to do. Anyone else have those kind of problems? I say, don't eat that, then I eat it. Don't drink that, then I drink it. Don't smoke that, then you smoke it. Don't look at that website. Don't wimp out. Don't procrastinate. Don't lie. Don't get envious. Don't yell at the kids. And then we do it. If you're like me, you're in good company, you know. Because Paul, as he writes this uh, remarkable letter to the followers of the way in Rome, his epistle to the Romans. He, ad he admits this. This is his confession to them in uh, Romans 7, verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. He carries on later. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. This guy wrote half the New Testament. Turns out he's got the same snags as me and you. It's, it's part of the human condition, right? We want to do good. But the truth is we're prepared to do wrong. If what is wrong is what will help us get our own way. We, we set out to do good. But all too often, we do wrong if we feel that that is what we need to do to get our way. And too often, too often you hear this silly religious response from the church. Not here, thankfully, but the wider church. That the response to this particular problem is just try harder. Just try harder. Just dig a bit deeper to be a good person. But any addict will tell you, and, and whether or not you have some identified addiction to some behavior or substance or, or problem, everyone sitting here tonight has a heart that has the potential to become a little idol factory. And what we call addictions, frankly, in biblical times, were more often than not called idolatries. Every one of us here can easily get attached to the wrong stuff, to the wrong behavior. And any addict will tell you, you will get to the point where eventually you will have to confess that just trying harder simply doesn't cut it. As an aside, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you say, would say, I'm not a believer, if you don't uh, believe in God, if you're just exploring faith, you are so welcome. But this idea is still good for you. Even if you don't yet believe in God, here is the reality. There is my will, what I want to do. What suits me, and there is doing the right thing. What is good and honest and truthful and courageous. And how many of you have found out from time to time that doing your thing and doing the right thing isn't necessarily the same thing? Anyone experience that? If you didn't just nod, you're currently doing the wrong thing. 
Even if you don't believe in God, if you try and live with an unsurrendered will, you, you intend, you, you, you are predisposed to push against the flow of the moral universe, actually. Good exists, even if you don't want it to. Reality, including spiritual reality, exists, even if you don't like that fact. And this is a goodness and spiritual reality. They're like a mighty river flowing. And when I surrender my will, when I say, I'm not going to just get my own way, but I'm going to do what is good and right and honest, it's like I'm suddenly not flowing against, but I'm suddenly with the tide, some current that is greater than me. Like no one has ever lived this more clearly and more powerfully and taught this with greater clarity than Jesus. Here he is with Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's just about to go into Jerusalem and he's trying to explain to them why he has to go to Jerusalem and endure that sham of a trial and that cross that we're just about to celebrate at Easter. And he says this to his disciples, Matthew 16, verses 24 onwards. He said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever wants to lose his life for me will find it. There's so much confusion in the church about what it actually means to, to take up your cross and deny yourself. It's very simple. It's hard to do, but it ain't complicated. It simply means to say, my desires and what I want are no longer the ultimate goal in my life. I'm willing to give up what I want in order to do what is good. That simply means take up your cross and deny yourself. That is what Jesus is talking about. It's me saying my life is no longer primarily about getting my own way. And this is the first step in consecrating yourself. You have to be in this place to devote, to dedicate yourself to Jesus. This is how being in the world but not of the world will actually make sense instead of being some just abstract aspiration that you hear thrown out in church. This is when it will literally make sense. This is the first step. You may well know that uh, AA, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, not the the car people, um, they they follow something called the 12 steps. Okay, and this is a program that they got from uh, a discipleship group, a Christian discipleship group, more than 100 years ago called the Oxford Movement. They're still in uh, existence, the Oxford movement. Uh, I think they've changed their name a couple of times. Um, And they they came up with with these 12 steps to become a a, a disciple of Jesus. And the first three steps are this. Firstly, we confess that our problems can become unmanageable and our lives can go out of control. Second step. We acknowledge there is a power greater than ourselves that could restore sanity to our lives if we let him. Third step. 
we decide to turn our wills and our lives over to God for him to take care of our problems. Can sum those three steps up with this simple phrase? I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. I can't. But God can. I think I'll let him. That's the foundation. Surrender. I can't want, I can't fix myself. I certainly can't fix you. I can't remove my guilt. I can't help that I'm an alcoholic or a rageaholic or an imageaholic or a workaholic or a judgmentaholic. I can't control my worry. I can't control my lust. I can't control my eating. Whatever it is for you, you can't. God can. Will you let him? Why don't people let him? If it's that simple, why don't people let him? If it's that good an idea, why don't they let him? Because when, I come, when it comes down to it, I, I think people are scared of that word that we've been singing about tonight, surrender. They think it means mindless obedience or robotic conformity. It does not, not at all. Your will, your will is precious to God. It's precious to God. He gave it to you. Free will is God's idea. We need to take hold of this reality. Free will is God's idea. It is not just some unfortunate byproduct of this fallen world and something we just have to deal with. Think about this God is love. And so for love to exist, free will must necessarily exist with all the problems that it brings. For you to love, you, that has to be a choice. Tragically, that means you have the choice to not love as well. Love only exists where there is free will. So you, free will can never be anything other than a good thing because free will is a God thing. I don't know if many of you have seen the film Stepford Wives, have you seen the film? Originally in the 70s, um, that was a brilliant film. There was a remake about 2004 or 2005, I think, which I haven't seen. It's basically um, about this couple who moved to a place called Stepford. And uh, they quickly realise, in this lovely little town, that all the wives are perfect. Literally, all they want to do is cook and clean and, um, and make their husbands happy. It's what they were obsessed with. They had no opinions. They never argued. They never moaned. They lived to make their husbands' lives happy. And I'll be honest, I googled to see if they do online courses, but uh, they didn't. But as, as the film unfolds, it's pretty obvious that these are not perfect loving wives. They're nothing more than automatons, robots. Programmed. And without the will to do anything but please their husbands and do their bidding. There were a couple of spin-offs, the Stepford Husbands and the Stepford Children. But in those films, um, the husbands and the children, though at first appeared to be perfect examples, were nothing more than loveless robots. And what this film reminds us is that in close personal relationships, conformity to someone else's will Conformity to someone else's wishes, conformity to someone else's bidding, isn't worth anything if it is mindless. It's not worth anything 
uh, if it's acquired at the expense of freedom and the destruction of, of personality, therefore. The Stepford world would be a world without pain. In a Stepford world, we currently wouldn't be watching with disbelieving eyes and broken hearts at the Ukraine currently. That wouldn't happen. Be a world with no pain, no upset, but no person. So no personality and so no love. No love, no meaning. God does not want robots or clones. God wants persons. He wants personalities. And when the penny drops that free will is God's idea for you, then, then I realise that I can joyfully and intelligently surrender my will because it's precisely my selfish, unsurrendered, self-centred, self-promoting will that is actually my problem. I mentioned AA a minute ago. There is this book that's an overview of the course called uh, the, the Big Book of AA. And it describes this problem, this particular problem, perfectly. <coughs> it says, um, <coughs> somewhere on here, I've got nowhere near these notes, so I don't know where I am. Um, it says, each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show. is forever trying to arrange the lights, the music, the ballet, the scenery and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put... If only the people would do as he wished, then the show would be great. That's the way it seems to me. I mean, I quite like a little Stepford world with a Stepford wife and two Stepford kids and a Stepford house with a Stepford job and a Stepford church. But of course, this puts me on a collision course with every other person in humanity who will have their own idea of their perfect world their will. The bad news is, I can't. The great news is, God can. The question is, will you let him? You know, I'm standing here as a Christian preacher in this church that I love, in, in this ch Christian family that I absolutely adore. I'm standing here, frankly, because of one remarkably unremarkable man. A Christian man who in the darkest moment of his life decided that he couldn't, but God could, and so he let him. I'm talking about my dad. My dad had a horrible, horrible brain tumour. It was so aggressive that uh, within a year of being diagnosed, he, he was dead. And on the, the day he died, I, I went to see my dad and, and visit him and spend some time with him. And for quite a while, I, I was alone with him. It's my dad and his youngest son, his, his baby, and, and we spent some time together. It's unbelievable. Here is a man who was experiencing the darkest, most frightening thing you, you would imagine anyone would ever have to endure. Was in terrible pain. But there was something remarkable about him. At the time, I was a young Royal Marine, a self-righteously angry man. I mean, you know me as a Christian. Imagine what I was like without Jesus. <laughs> I was a fire-breathing atheist, passionately evangelical atheist. And here I am, looking at a man who is moments away from death, suffering this hideous, evil disease. But there was something about him. There was a peace, a joy even, a, a, a contentment in his eyes. It was undeniable. I was looking at him and it was irrefutable. 
It was as if in the very moment that Satan is preparing to throw his knockout punch and take him out. It was in that very moment that it's almost like my dad said, no, I can't, but God can. I think I'll let him. And as the devil tries to steal his holy destiny, his salvation, his peace, he fails so obviously that I'm witnessing this man's contentment, his, his assurance. And do you know what? My, my righteous atheism was slipping through my fingers right before his eyes. All these clever arguments that I drenched myself in for a few years, the smartest atheists in the world, all their writing, all their books, I had them all, suddenly were slipping through my fingers as I looked at faith in action, as I looked at somebody who had surrendered their all, who knew that he couldn't, that this might be bigger than him, but he knew a God that wasn't bigger than him, and he'd handed it over. And in that moment, as I looked into my dad's eyes, moments before my dad died, my earthly father's eyes was witness enough for me to get on my knees and pray and give my life to my heavenly father. It's like, you know, like, you love that, the verse, death, where is your sting? When you see it, Satan is not you versus me, mate. It's you versus him. And I've read the end of the book and you don't come out of it very well. It's like, you know, he can take a remarkably unremarkable man and give him the power to walk straight through an inoperable brain tumour. Straight into glory. He's been doing it the whole time, right through this book. He takes a corrupt tax collector like Zacchaeus. And he gives him the power to be like a poster boy for generosity. He takes a weak man, a weak hothead called Simon. He transforms him, turns him into literally Petros, the rock, the one I will build my church upon. He takes a hater of Peter called Saul. And he transforms him and he turns him into a lover of people called Paul, whose motto was, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can't, he can. The question is, will you let him? Just like we were thinking about last week, you know, meditating on God's word, surrender, consecrating yourself to him. It's, it's not a kind of one-time thing. Of course there's a first time. You're not just going to drift into this. There is a first time where you, 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 you acknowledge that you can't, but God can. I think I'll let him. But then it's a daily surrender, and some days you will do better than others. But in Jesus, you have a personal saviour who totally gets it, you know. We're just about to... Sorry, I've gone on. I'm, I'm coming into land. Sorry, I'm so sorry. We're just getting to Easter. In Jesus, there is the most, in every respect, Jesus is the ultimate example of, of everything. But in terms of surrender, there's a moment. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's moments before he is betrayed. Literally moments before. 
the, the disciples, that he wants them to pray with him, but they're asleep. They've let him down. The crowds down in Galilee, they're long gone. Here is Jesus, praying like he's never prayed before. And there was this incredible moment, don't want you to miss this, when Jesus is literally crying tears of blood. He's praying like he's never before. And there was this moment where he cries out, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. And it's like the only moment in history, don't miss this, where the will of the Son and the will of the Father do not appear to be aligned. And it's like the whole of creation holds its breath because what happens next literally could change everything. And then Jesus says, but not my will, but yours be done. And the rest is literally history. He's arrested. He's taken away. And he ends up on a cross. But you and me, we're Eastern people, we're looking at an empty cross. Friends, here is the truth. You can't. God can. Jesus has. Will you let him? Amen. Amen.